Hey, before we start the show, I'd like to give a shout out to a very special sponsor of the Code Story podcast, and that's Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is one of the highest rated coding schools in the country, employing experts who are passionate about sharing their craft and empowering the next wave of programmers. Through their bootcamp, they accelerate education by focusing on modern skills to align their students with the needs of the tech industry. They offer a variety of courses from web development to UX design to iOS development, and their hands-on approach enables students to launch their careers or build their startups and ultimately to achieve their goals. I can personally vouch for the quality developers they produce, having hired six graduates from their Dallas campus. Not only does Dev Mountain teach the practical skills needed to build software, they give their students a foundation to amplify the necessary creative thinking, problem-solving, and project-focused skills required for tech professionals today. You can find out more information about their programs and how to sign up at devmountain.com. That's D-E-V-Mountain.com. Music is, is all about rules and patterns, right? Programming is problem solving, but also kind of creative thinking. Genuinely tech person having feature requests, support requests, change requests, coming down the pipe all the time, I think it's really easy to kind of get tunnel vision. What's a legitimate feature request, like an actual improvement versus what is someone requesting something to be tweaked to make their life a little bit easier? I'm speaking at this many conferences this year and I'm, my business is doing this much money this year. At some point, it's important to learn how to relax and rest. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today we talk with Sean Washington about how he became a developer, podcast host, and CTO of the Design Collective. All this and more on Code Story. Nowadays, people are introduced to software development through multiple avenues. And it's pretty amazing how many other industries parallel the thinking and creative process of writing code. Teaching, project management, even music. Sean Washington took an unconventional route into software through writing music and graphic design. Since then, he has been sprinting forward as a full-stack web developer and tech podcast host. His most recent adventure has been becoming the CTO and lead developer of the Design Collective, giving him the opportunity not only to learn the platform, but to make it his own and define the vision for how to uplevel the product. John, thank you for being on Code Story. Thank you for having me. So... Tell me, tell me about you outside of being involved in tech. I, uh, these days, I don't really do a whole lot. I guess before technology, it was music. That's, that's kind of what I always did. I quit music to, to get into technology. So outside of working, I, I play guitar, listen to music, try to go to shows. Other than that, um, my girlfriend's kind of introduced me to the outdoors a little bit, pushed me to become more uh, you know, one with the environment, so hiking and and going on sales and, and surfing and, and things like that. So just being outside away from computer screens and, and stuff, which has been really, really helpful for me. But I, I, I'm a 
a creature of habit. So I have to, I like my routines. And so I get into routines. And uh, most recently, it's just been working and in, in training jujitsu and working and training jujitsu kind of on a cycle. So. so tell me about, so let's get into a little bit of tech. Tell me about your path to get where you are right now, like your career path. Yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, interesting. I don't, I don't know if it's like non-standard. So I didn't go to school. I'm self-taught. Originally, I was in school, uh, in college, I was studying music, and then uh, the music department there kind of fell apart, and so I switched to graphic design. So I went through mostly through the graphic design curriculum there. I ended up dropping out my senior year of college to play guitar for a living. But in the design department, I had a lot of friends, so we were all trying to make money freelancing, and none of us knew any developers, and, and so I figured, hey, why not? give it a shot because then there's an instant job market so that's kind of how it worked out so what I did was I started learning how to make WordPress themes and it progressed from there so you came in through obviously through the music world so a creative you know arena and then you switched over to graphic design which is an awesome skill to have as a developer it's interesting you know I've met a lot of developers who are also musicians or started out as musicians or you know still are musicians there's there seems to be a pretty interesting parallel between writing music or playing music and programming what are your thoughts on that uh, I would say that's my experience too I know a lot of developers that are currently see musicians or playing in bands and I, I guess programming is is problem solving but also kind of creative thinking right you have to kind of think creatively about how to solve a problem it's there's a lot of rules to follow and people like to put rules and kind of frame things as much as they possibly can but i think at the core of it programming is a lot about creatively thinking about a problem and how to solve it and approach it i I totally agree with that tell me how you got started with design collective i i was on the road for a long time and I got kind of tired of that and kind of got worn down. And I had a friend from college that had started a design and development firm out here in California. And so that's kind of how I got here. They had been kind of, I, I did some freelance work for them. And so they had been trying to hire me a couple of times. Uh, and so I was kind of in a lucky to be in that position where with, if they needed a developer, if they needed somebody, they kind of reached out to me first because they knew me. And uh, they just happened to reach out to me at the right day. I was sitting in a Dunkin' Donuts in Athens, Georgia, feeling down and just got home from tour and didn't have any money. And, and Paul, Paul, I think, sent me a message on Skype and was like, hey, are you interested in having a call? And so I did. And I moved out there. And they were a company that did, they did a lot of design work, but they also did a lot of development work as well. And so we ended up building lots of different smaller MVP products for customers. So if you had an idea, you had a little bit of money, you can come to us, we would help you kind of plan the features, design it and build you the MVP so that you can go and and get funding. So Design Collective came to that agency, which was called Octopus. Uh, I didn't actually work on the team that built the original MVP, but I kind of met uh, my boss Lindsay at that at that time. Fast forward a few more years, and I kind of wanted to get out of the consulting game. I got sort of tired of the setup and teardown cycle of building MVPs for for clients, and so I think right around that time, Lindsay just happened to have reached out to James and and asked if he knew anybody that was that was looking for a job that would fit their first tech hire criteria, and so he forwarded that to me, and we made it happen. Just to make sure I understand, so you were working for Octopus, but you didn't work on Design Collective, you were working on other projects. 
And then when you were getting to the point where you're like, okay, what's my next thing outside of consulting design collective came back and said, Hey, you guys know anybody? And you're like, yeah, raise my hand. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. And I think in consulting, there's kind of like this greener pasture where you're looking for, you have this desire to work on something for longer than six months or a few months and, and looking for some sort of stability. And I think I was kind of feeling that I wanted to work with, I, I suppose, like one client more steadily. I think that was maybe the hardest thing that was the thing that was hardest on me was kind of learning people's personalities and learning how to communicate with them. And then as soon as you learn how to communicate with that person, you have to like meet a new team of people and do the same thing over again. It was just pretty draining. So tell me about then, so you jumped in into Design Collective. Was it a, hey, we're looking for a CTO, come on in and be our CTO? Or was it, hey, we're looking for someone to come in and be a developer? Or what was the situation when you took over at Design Collective? So it's kind of, all the above. So when I came in, I was actually the first technical person. So I guess what they had done was they had the MVP built, um, but they didn't launch it right away. What they did was they went around and collected more information from the market and from potential to customers. And they were just trying to learn more about what they actually wanted to do. So it was interesting because they had this, they had this MVP with a certain set of features. And then I came in to kind of, like you said, oversee all, like, all technical aspects. So not only just like development of the platform and launching the thing, but also setting up the emails and setting up the DNS and making sure all this stuff's configured. And, and so kind of everything technology related would kind of be under my my purview, I guess. When you came in and, and the product was, you know, an MVP set of features, what tools were you immediately introduced to or what did you start using uh, on day one? Yeah, so the MVP was built with Ruby on Rails and it was relatively straightforward. Ruby on Rails, Postgres for the database. Uh, and I think at that point, Elasticsearch had also been plugged in for, for plain text searching, uh, for searching products and stuff. When you hit the ground running and you, you saw the MVP, what was your first step in building the tech future of this product? Before I was able to jump in and even start thinking about like, what does the future of this product look like? It was, what do we actually have versus what my, my boss's expectations are basically. And so there was a, basically a round of just trying to learn the thing myself because I hadn't, you know, I didn't take part in building it and I didn't, I wasn't really around in any of the meetings or the plannings, you know? So I think there was this interesting phase that took me a while of reconciling sort of the perceived features from the team around me versus what we had in front of us. That's interesting. So, so I, I would get, you know, you coming in to Design Collective, being a fresh set of eyes, so to speak, and having to learn, you know, what, what was made before you, but even the, the, say the business side of the equation or the product side of the equation didn't exactly know what they had. It was a lot of um, just trying to figure out okay, exactly where are we at? They have this thing and then they're continuing to move on and think about the future, think about features they want to add to it, right? And then I show up and I'm like, okay, here's here's where you're kind of moving forward, but the code's not moving forward because it's not a technical person at all, right? So it's kind of like reconciling the two worlds. What was your process for doing that? You come in, you take over something as a collective team. What was your process for doing that? Uh, writing a lot, taking a lot of notes. Uh, I went through the original deck. So I think when, when Lindsay, my boss, approached Design Collective, she had a deck or basically a presentation of, here's what my idea is at its core, right? Uh, so basically the vision, like what her overarching vision is. And so I looked at that, tried to internalize that. And then what I would do is I would go to the code base and go to the app, click around, look through the code and see, 
okay, here are the features that we have. Here's kind of how it works. Do they line up and how much work would be need, you know, need to be done to line those two things up? But really it was a lot of not even programming. And that was what was weird for me because up until that point in my career, I'd only ever been paid to like, only ever felt like I was actually making money if I was typing code. But here I am sitting in Google Docs all day long, uh, you know, not writing code and, and talking to non-technical people. But the process really was just a lot of asking as many questions as I could, trying to really understand what what the vision was. And I guess that kind of go towards uh, the question you asked about, like, how do you start preparing this thing for the future, right? Is really trying to get a proper sense of what the vision is from, from my boss. And luckily she's really good at vision casting. And so once I was able to understand that, you know, then I start, then I was able to start kind of writing down like, okay, well, here's what we need to update. Here's what we need to change. Um, here's, we need to turn the ship a little bit to make sure we can hit that vision. So then next step. So what, what decisions or trade-offs did you have to make in the short term? Okay. So you understand the vision, you understand where the product is and you know where you want to go. How did you make those short-term, long-term type decisions and trade-offs? And what were they? We had something that like worked okay, but it, it wasn't ideal. And really what we had was we had something that, you know, it like worked, but it wasn't going to work for too long. And so uh, I try not to think about scaling or I try to think about performance too early on because it's not going to be a problem if you don't have customers. If you don't have users, it doesn't matter if your app doesn't perform. But it was becoming pretty clear that some of the stuff that we needed to tackle right away to be able to even steer the ship were some performance related things. And, and I say this and I always hear this uh, said, but you know, rewriting is never the answer until maybe it is the answer. So what I started doing was the Rails app was really, it felt like it was built by someone who knew Ruby, but didn't really know Rails. And so it was kind of like many Ruby apps inside of a Rails shell. And so it was really hard for me to navigate things. And, and also, we're in a, in a unique position, I guess, to where we hadn't launched the thing. It wasn't live. It wasn't out there. We didn't have customers depending on it, nor were they in a rush to push this thing out there. So I had actually been toying with Elixir for a while and I really liked it. I really enjoyed the language. I felt, I felt really um, productive with it. So I just started rewriting small pieces of the app, just kind of piece by piece. And uh, so I think it ended up taking me from start to finish, it ended up taking me about two months to kind of replace the entire thing, kind of translating from Ruby and Rails to a single Elixir code base. Nice. No, no. Tell me a little bit about Elixir. I know a little bit about it, but kind of give me a little bit of an overview of what Elixir would be as opposed to Rails. We were using Phoenix, which would be more akin to what Rails is. So Rails is, you know, just a framework for Ruby that's built on top of Ruby. And Phoenix is uh, similar to Rails, but it's a lot lighter, lighter weight. And, and so for me, the biggest, I think the biggest win in doing that was kind of just clarity in code. For example, a lot of the original Design Collective MEP app was written with callbacks, which was really difficult to debug. Something would happen on a model, and then you have these kind of invisible feeling functions running in a chain, and it's hard to track. It was hard for me to track those down. With with Elixir and Phoenix, Phoenix actually encourages. Uh, well, first of all, it's actually a, it's a it's a functional language, and so you don't have in classes and instances of classes. You just have functions that are that are um, organized into modules. So for me, it kind of stripped away the whole class and inheritance scenario. Uh, you have modules and you have functions. And if you need to reuse logic, you can 
alias a module in another module if you want and use those functions. It's interesting now that I'm thinking about it, you're kind of, you know, you're asking me like, how do you position this thing for the future? In that rewrite allowed me to simplify a lot of things and it made me intimately familiar with all of the functionality. Whereas before it was really difficult for me to become familiar with that stuff. But the only parallel is like with Ruby and Elixir, like they look similar. A lot of people will look at Elixir and be like, oh, it looks like Ruby, but they're just not the same at all. Elixir is functional and Ruby is, you know, class, typical class-based object-oriented programming language. How has the product progressed after that? So you, you brought it into a new framework, a new language, and then what did you do next? How did you mature the product after that? So, you know, Design Collective being a collection of tools that that small businesses, specifically furniture stores, use to sell their business, not just their, their merchandise, but their actual business online. They they basically had a really clear kind of runway with, we, we need this, this, and this to be able to sell this. And, and I think they had that put together so quickly because they, again, they were, they're actually selling stuff on Design Collective themselves, the parent company is. So they knew pretty well what we needed. But on top of that, they also go to a lot of trade shows because they do manufacture furniture. They go to various trade shows around the country. And what they would do is they would set up a little booth and then they would collect information. Like, what would you want this to look like? So they had all these little stores kind of at their fingertips that are ready and willing to answer those questions. And so they come back to me and basically from there, the process, you know, I would ask them, okay, which one's the most important to you? They would tell me and then I would, I would say, okay, I think this could, this could be done in this amount of time. Is that okay? And they would say yes. And then we would just continue on. It was kind of like imagining you're on a train and then the tracks are just kind of like being built as things moving forward slowly. That's kind of what it felt like. Since I'm the only technical person, I am doing the all the work in the feature development, you know, the back end, the front end, thinking about designing it and then implementing it at the same time, you know, having meetings of like, okay, what happens next? What does that look like? How long will it take, et cetera? Um, so basically it just kind of happened in chunks like that where we were coming up on the end of a, a feature build. Um, we would start scheduling the next one. From, from my experience, that could go one of two ways. Either that rich exposure or access to feedback from a market is you know, like gold for the grandkiddies kind of thing where you, you know, you're just getting all kinds of great stuff like, oh yeah, we could do this. We could do this. Yeah. You, you tell me you want that. We could do it this way. Or it could be absolute utter chaos. What was it for you? A little bit of both, to be honest. Uh, and I think, so that's one of the things I feel like I've finally learned. This is my third year on Design Collective. I think my third anniversary is actually in December. And I think the first two years were full of yeses. And I think maybe 60% of them should have been not now or no early on like a lot of the ideas i think were pretty good and so i think where things really got interesting were after we launched this thing we had some stores onboarded because we had a kind of a collection of stores that our our parent company were familiar with and knew really well and so they they kind of came on for free and helped us uh start the thing up and and so alike i think a lot of the initial feature requests that were there made a lot of sense because they came from my boss or my parent company who, who knew exactly what they needed out of this thing. They just didn't necessarily have the budget to put it into the MVP. And I think where things got really interesting was once the thing was out and we started getting, you know, kind of mixed with like feature requests and support requests and questions, that's where it became a little bit more difficult because the waters start getting muddied between 
what's a legitimate feature request, like an actual improvement versus what is someone requesting something to be tweaked to make their life a little bit easier. And, and that was more difficult for me because I don't necessarily want to be a jerk and say no to everybody. Like, no, I'm not going to do that because there's another way for you to do this. It just takes you two minutes longer. Right. But at some point I only have 40 hours a week that I should be putting in on this thing. And so I have to decide what's most important with my 40 hours here. That's kind of where it got crazy was trying to trying to filter through all that stuff and also maintain the other side of the working relationship, the non-tech side, like trying to like each other at the end of the day and not argue and not be frustrated with other people, right? And that was to me was the hardest part was feeling like I'm actually being useful to my teammates, but also feeling like I'm not uh, putting putting the app in a worse place by saying yes to everything. Uh, when maybe I shouldn't say yes to certain things. Did you feel supported by your leadership when you're making those decisions? Were, were, or were those the people that were asking for the things where you have to measure, is this within the 40 hours or this is not? Um, mostly, yes. It's, yeah, it's interesting in, in that my main, my main boss, Lindsay, 100% always supported. And I, I've, I've said this a few times and, and in that I'm really blessed to have a boss where if she thinks that I'm when I'm answering a deadline question, if she thinks I'm being a little shaky or not answering, absolutely. She'll be the one to say, let's add two weeks to it. Add another week, add two weeks. Doesn't matter. Just as long as you feel okay with the deadline. Yeah. And so I've, I've been very supported in that fact and, and I don't have to rush things out. I kind of shoot myself in the foot because um, I'm always scheduled things with not enough time. Even <laughs> I know better, right? So I'm having a discussion uh, with Paul or other an engineer and we'll be like, okay, when do we think we can do this? Let's add another week. And then there's always that conversation. Should we add two more weeks? Now nah, we can probably, it won't be those two weeks, you know, but it's almost always the case where you do need those two weeks. So it's kind of an interesting thing where it's, it's not necessarily like any stress and stuff like that doesn't come from from my my bosses or the people over me imposing deadlines. It's kind of a self-imposed thing where I failed to consider something when I'm thinking of feature A. Like I didn't think about the other half of the work that needed to be done or the other things that that feature affected when I was pitching the time frame. So I guess to really answer your question, yeah, I felt supported. Um, there are times obviously where people you know would ask like, or say things like, oh yeah, it'd be nicer if this could be done faster. But majority of the cases it was yeah take as much time as you need because we understand that it makes sense for you to spend time on this and not rush it were you a part of or were you responsible for bringing on the the second person yes yep gotcha so how did you go about choosing that person how what were you how did you know what you were looking for uh, and what brought up the need for an additional resource uh so the need for an additional resource came about because I just wasn't getting as much done as I wanted to. And, and um, I was spending, I spent a lot of my time, you know, communicating with other teammates, thinking and writing, um, and also kind of processing feature requests and feedback. So if that takes up a third of my time or half of my time, that means that a half of my, only a half of my time is actually spent on putting this stuff into production or making it a reality, which, I mean, that wears down on me a lot. And I think really actually what was taking it out of me the most was just kind of being on call all the time. So if there's an issue or a bug comes up, uh, it was uncanny. It was always, I would say something in Slack like, hey, I'm headed to go train, I'm headed to the gym, uh, let me know if you need anything. 
I get in the car. Ten minutes later, I get a Slack notification. Hey, so and so says this thing isn't working. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm stressed out because I can't do anything about it. So I think that was a lot of it too. Is I just needed somebody else to be able to answer questions, somebody else to be able to field support requests, somebody else just to talk to. You know, throughout the day, rubber ducking, brainstorming, whatever. I think. That was really; those were really the biggest things that I needed. Was just another person present, uh, and and the process was, uh, I happened to know somebody that was looking, and I happened to have worked with them in the past. In fact, they actually hired me to Octopus, <laughs> so uh, I hired my old boss, and he was the second tech person at Design Collective. Nice. Was was there any any weirdness in the shift in um, bossness there? I guess. <laughs> no, uh, I don't think so. Anyway. Um, we didn't really. So it's it's weird. I my title might be CTO, but I just feel like when when I I don't know. It feels weird when I tell people that. So sometimes I tell people I'm just like the tech guy at a startup. You know, there was never really any sort of like rules or or areas of responsibility to enforce. There was so much work to be done and so much work to go around. We would just kind of divvy it up and do it. We happened to, I guess, beforehand. You know, I had written down a lot of things in our README, like, you know, here's the code style that we follow, and a lot of my code styles actually came from him originally because he was my first boss, and so that's what I got used to, right? Two spaces. He was already familiar, and and so he kind of came in, and uh, you know, we worked on the code base together for a little bit, and then we kind of sent them off. And so, primarily, since we've been working together, we've been. We help each other out here and there, do code reviews, and sometimes we pair back and forth. But we're primarily working on two different projects at the same time. It just went really smoothly. There was no sort of power dynamics. There was no sort of I'm your boss now, and you have to listen to what I tell you to do. It was. I think what really helped was that he just genuinely wanted the best for the business, and and so when it came time to pick out features or pick out bugs to fix. That was the thing we could both agree on. This one makes the most sense in terms of how it affects the bottom line, and so he'd be like, "I'm happy to spend my time there," and that's what he would do. Tell me, tell me from a from a CTO standpoint, team leader standpoint, what are you most proud of in what you've built at Design Collective? I think the first one, maybe from the business perspective, it feels really good when I tell people what we're building. That at the crux of what we're doing is we're trying to help brick and mortar businesses stay in business, and so that's the whole point of Design Collective. Really, is is to give tools back to these brick and mortar furniture stores that are getting put out of business left and right by Amazon, Wayfair, House, etc. So it's almost kind of like we're giving them a quiver full of arrows that they can use to market themselves. And so, to me, that that's what feels that's maybe what the most proudest of is is that I'm working on something that I feel like actually helps people enrich enriches people's lives. And and it's always kind of reaffirmed to me when we get feedback from our customers. Being uh, those being brick and mortar stores, how actually we've have a few stores that would have gone out of business if they hadn't gone, come onto our platform. And to me, that that's kind of like a point of of pride. I can feel proud of that, I guess. And from a technical standpoint, I was really insecure about the fact that I did make that decision to to rewrite. So I always kind of come back to like. What would things look like if I were still using Ruby and Rails? I certainly could have rehabbed it. I don't know how long it would have taken. But now, when I really think about it, I really, really enjoy the platforms that I'm using. To to their credit, we have I think our production app uses less than 200 megabytes of RAM at any given time, and our response times are uh, I think 50 percentile or less than 50 milliseconds from the API. That's incredible. It feels like it feels good, and at the same time, I haven't really had to. 
the really the only performance thing I've done, we don't do any cash and we don't do any of that stuff. We haven't had to. Really, the only things I've had to do are fix stupid mistakes that I made, like M plus ones or things like that, like SQL problems. But that feels feels really good to have something. Like I mentioned before, a big stressor for me was getting support requests like this. There's a bug here. There's a bug there. A lot of those have stabled out, and I think that's due to the way that Phoenix and Elixir encourage you to build applications. And so uh, I'm proud. It feels nice to like not be waking up in the middle of the night to to downtime or not being getting messages in you know after work hours and having to go back to the computer to work on that stuff. So maybe the real answer to that question is having. I feel proud about having built a seemingly stable platform from scratch. Yeah, that's a that's a big thing to be proud of. Yeah, and I deal. With, I struggle a lot with. Uh, and this is maybe turning into a little bit of a therapy hour, but I, I struggle. I feel like I struggle a lot with imposter syndrome and not feeling like a real CTO or not feeling like I have the credentials or anything like that because I learned how I just learned how to program through making WordPress themes and then you know coming to Octopus and making some really basic Rails MVPs and then jumping into Design Collective from there. I don't know. It, that's maybe maybe the third thing is is that I'm just I feel like. Uh, it's really challenged me and I've been able to to rise to the occasion. Looking back on that, I think it's really important to be able to assess what we did right and what we did wrong. What do you feel like was a mistake that you made that you either corrected or perhaps you know it's still there that you're having to deal with? You know, Walk me through some of that. I think one I mentioned earlier was kind of saying yes too much, trying to please, trying to please people, trying to please my coworkers too much. I think really... You know, I've heard my whole career, you know, keep it simple, stupid, fight for simplicity and all that stuff. But really, when it comes down to it, kind of being in the trenches like that, being the only tech person, having feature requests, support requests, change requests that are neither support nor feature requests coming down the pipe all the time, I think it's really easy to kind of get tunnel vision. The card gets thrown into Trello. You be like, okay, I'm just going to do this, drag it into doing, right? And, and not really spending enough time ahead of time really thinking and planning about certain things would be would be one of those mistakes. And I think that a big part of that is taking time to stick your head out of the water and take stock of things as a whole. So I'm trying to do that a lot more. I, I set reminders now actually to, to do that on my calendar. I'll get reminders to say like, hey, maybe don't jump into code right away this morning and think about the platform as a whole and think about the features. Yeah, saying yes too much, having too much tunnel vision, not coming up for air enough. Yeah, I think those are really like maybe the biggest like non-technical related mistakes that happen. And those are just kind of from being overwhelmed, I guess. What was the mistake that you made that turned out to be a blessing in disguise? That you, you know, something that happened that you were like, oh man, this isn't good. But either, you know, you rose above it with an awesome, elegant solution or it ended up being better than you thought it was going to be or something like that. Elasticsearch has been an interesting one for me because I've been trying to keep our platform as simple as possible. So I mentioned we're using Elixir and Phoenix. We have Postgres, we have Redis, and then we have Elasticsearch. And those are the major moving pieces of the platform. So there's been a lot of times where we've been trying to sort of tweak, I suppose, the the search algorithm. Uh, And I use the term algorithm there very loosely. (laughs) It's just a map of scorings and things like that. So yeah, I think there's been times where we've kind of tweaked things and put it out there. So we're really big on on numbers and analytics and making sure that we're not just making decisions based off of guesses. 
before I had some extra help, I would make a change and just kind of throw it out there. And there's been a couple of times where somehow they we've actually been like, oh, click-through rates have increased. I'm like, and my boss would be like, what did you do? I'm like, I, I don't know. I haven't really, there haven't been, and I don't mean this to be like, I'm an amazing programmer, but there haven't really been any major mistakes that have turned out to be blessings in disguises or like, I think part of that is due to, um, we're just trying to move really slow. We, we decided to not take funding. We decided to not grow the team really quickly. And, and so in doing that, it kind of gives us an extra one runway, I suppose. And so we'll ship features and then our boss is like, okay, now it's out. Let's iterate on this thing. And, and so if we have to make some changes, it doesn't really feel like it was a mistake. It was, it feels like it was kind of a 1.0 solution. And now it's time to make it a 1.1 or 1.2 or something, you know? One thing that's been really hard for me is that I have these Google Docs that I write features in. And, and so I have a template that I reuse. And so it goes through like the business requirements for a feature, user stories for a feature, implementation details and specifics. And at the bottom, I try to get people to sign off on them, but sometimes it's not possible. You know, and so sometimes a feature will go out and someone will be like, oh, I thought I went, I thought it was supposed to work this way. Then I would say, well, no, it's not in the document. And then there's always like some detail that was had in a conversation somewhere that didn't make it into being documented. So it wasn't implemented. So we've had things like that, but those have always been kind of like quick changes or, you, you know, things that, that weren't like showstoppers or, or anything like that, I guess. Sure. That makes sense. So what, what does the future look like for Design Collective, for the product and for your leadership and for your team, your technical team? I think at the end of this week, Paul's actually moving on to a new gig. And so I'm actually hiring uh, for someone to replace him. And so I've actually spent the last half of last week thinking about that actually, what like what the tech team looks like, what the app looks like going forward, our processes and things like that. As far as the platform goes, I think we're kind of in a good spot. We spent the last 16 months since Paul's been with us just adding features left and right. And so at the beginning of the year, I had a conversation with Lindsay and I just talked about you know, let's slow this thing down a little bit and refine what we have because we've added, we've added so much stuff. It's kind of daunting to look at the feature list now uh, and think about there's only two people to support this thing. And so we've been kind of slowing the process down and thinking about, okay, so now we have a lot of stuff. We have customers that are coming on and so we're growing as a company. We're getting paid customers. What is, you know, a more polished version of this, this platform look like? And so I think for the app or for the company, uh, you know, the future is going to be more hours spent on you know, making something easier to use or, or more, more cohesive or, or spending more time on the UX of things. That's sort of honestly been on the back burner uh, because we had a list of features that we wanted to get through and that we were expected to get through. So in, in looking at that requirement and, and in looking at the new person I'm looking to hire, I think like design was a lot higher up on my list, like design shops. And so the tech team is transitioning from two kind of generalists, people that can do backend and front end, to you know me that can do backend and front end. But hopefully, I'll be focusing more on our API, and then having a new person that has some solid design chops that can focus more on the JavaScript side of things, because we have uh, our front end is actually a a server side rendered uh, Nux and Express app, so API and client are split completely. So you know, I'm looking for someone that has some you know solid design chops that can take that world and make it their own, which is something totally new for Design Collective because up until now, we've always had two people that have been mainly back and focused that can write JavaScript at the same time. 
So you're a podcast host or co-host for Does Not Compute. How did that get started? So yeah, so Paul and I, we would always go out to lunch and just talk shop. And it came time for him to actually move on from Octopus. And he had been, I think he had tried to start a podcast a couple of times. And so he just floated me the question, hey, would you want to do this? And I said, sure, why not? And that's, that's how it started. <laughs> I remember hanging a microphone from this closet that was under the stairs, think like Harry Potter style. I wedged a microphone in this closet. And so Paul and I would just, we recorded a couple of pilot episodes. And then we also got uh, pretty spoiled too, because one of my best friends from college, my buddy Bryn started spec.fm. So he had started a podcast network. He had, uh, I think him and his buddy Brian started a podcast called Design Details uh, and they did pretty well. And so they ended up starting Spec Network. And so we recorded a couple of pilots and Paul shot it over to Bryn and Bryn was like, hey, I kind of like this. We signed a contract and it's been a hundred and I think 174 episodes now. So did you expect it to go like that or was it just, no, we're going we're gonna to do this podcast and, and have a good time with it and see where it goes? I honestly didn't, yeah, I didn't, I hadn't thought about it to be completely honest. Um, Paul kind of had this idea of what he wanted to make. So he was kind of steering the ship at that point. I was honestly just really insecure about what I had to contribute because uh, at that point, I felt like I didn't know anything about anything, you know? So when they hired me at Octopus, they're like, you know, coffee script, right? And I was like, uh, you know, I've, I've written a little bit of it, you know? And so I just immediately jumped in over my head at that point. And so they just, they did me a solid in that they, they allowed me to kind of learn on the job. And I thought like, maybe that's what I had to contribute to the show was how to learn on demand. And so a lot of the early conversations were about figuring it out as you went. And apart from that, I didn't really feel like I had any real expertise to add, uh, but I really enjoyed the conversation and I really enjoyed kind of talking shop. And when Paul told me he was kind of, you know, ready to move on from the show, Rockwell had actually been talking to me a little bit about, you know, kind of guesting on the show. And so I kind of asked him, I was like, hey, would you be interested in being a co-host? But yeah, it just sort of was a thing I just kind of showed up every weekend for. And uh, it's been like, I don't even know, more than two years now, three years probably. Name, name an architect or a CTO or a tech person, or if none of those are applicable, that you look up to and tell me why. Uh, yeah. So I look up to Greg Shear a lot and, uh, he most notably probably makes, uh, the insomnia rest client. I think the site's insomnia.rest. I forget how we even met actually now that I think about it, maybe Twitter, but I look up a lot to him because he's just kind of doing his own thing. He was a CTO. I think he was an early CTO at, um, one of the, one of the larger email, uh, service providers out there, uh, the people that send the emails like Mailgun or similar, but he wasn't at Mailgun. He had this side project that he worked on that turned out to be successful, uh, which is Insomnia. And so I've, I've been to Montreal a few times to hang out with him. And I, I really, I, I think I could really enjoy, I think how he approaches life. And so he's kind of in a sweet position where Insomnia is open source and there's a pro, a pro uh, membership for it. And the pro membership covers all of his losing expenses. And so he puts in the work to kind of steward the open source project and make sure things are getting merged and, and uh, you know, bugs are getting fixed. But apart from that, he, he spends a lot of time reading and thinking and just kind of walking. He goes on these long walks, which I think is just awesome, you know. Uh, so he just kind of 
comes in to and fro and does what he pleases. And to me, that's really, really appealing. But on top of that, what inspires me about him is that he's kind of like he's put in that work. And so when I talk to him, he's happy to answer questions, happy to answer whatever, whether it's like process questions, you know, technical questions. He's just transparent, I guess. And so he's always working on different things and he's always like sharing me like screenshots of like the inside process, like how the sausage is made. And he's really open about it. And so I learn a lot from him and uh, I really look up to him a lot. Last question. If you could, if you could give another developer who is taking a similar path as you or, or even taking a different path, what advice would you give someone who's just kind of getting started? Schedule breaks. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's a really important one that I can think of right now. A schedule break, scheduled downtime, scheduled time for your brain to not be on all the time. I think that's been taking a really big toll on me over the last few years. I have this big fancy title or whatever. Every day when I wake up, I'm just happy to work on something that I enjoy working on. I think right now what that means for me is just being thankful that I have something like that. And like especially on Twitter and different social networks, people are always sharing and I'm speaking at this many conferences this year and I'm, my business is doing this much money this year. And that's great. It's like at some, at some point, I think like it's important to learn how to relax and rest and take a break. Maybe that's what I'm trying to learn how to do is take a break and, and relax for a minute. I know specifically when we first moved, I didn't know anybody. I worked from home. I was just kind of there and I didn't, you know, I didn't have too many hobbies there. And thankfully, my girlfriend kind of pushed me out the door and was like, you're going to go to jujitsu class. And that helped a lot. And in, in that, it helped me learn how important that time was because I learned it was okay to actually, you know, put my phone on silent. In fact, somebody on the mat, they had seen me checking my text before we were getting on the mat to train. And he was like, hey, you know, you should probably put that on silent and like focus before you, you come to the gym and train. And I was like, he was right, you know? So... I guess my advice would be take breaks, schedule time for yourself, schedule time for some self, self-care and, and make sure that's a priority as well. Great stuff. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you being on the show on Code Story today. Thanks for your time in the interview. Yeah, thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is a production of TouchTap LLC and is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart, co-produced and edited by George Macharco. Special thanks to Deanna Chapman and Stephanie Campisi for their promotional support. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Breaker, or the podcasting app of your choice. Make sure to check us out at CodeStory.co or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn.